with the glories of the gospel to explain. Now we Very good morning to you, brothers and sisters, and a happy new year. Uh, great to be together yet again and really looking forward to what the Lord has in store uh, for our church family in 2021. And to all those uh, watching at home here on the live stream, greetings to you as well. We, as we'll see in our study of Philippians, we are one church family uh, that we need to be unified. And I pray that all of us are continuing to evaluate what is best for our families and our close loved ones during these times and feels the freedom uh, to do uh, whatever is best. Uh, great news, again, to start the new year, the Christmas initiative, the church family, we, you, you gave over $60,000, which was a far, uh, far exceeded uh, what we even imagined. So thank you for giving so generously that we were able to fund the ultrasound machine and help with the refurbishment of a house through the city mission and send some uh, monies to the, the pastors over in Rwanda and uh, even more than that. So thank you. I hope you, you feel a sense of joy as to what we were able to accomplish even uh, during the pandemic. 
Next week, we'll return to normal with the children's schedule. So that affects a lot of people here this morning. So, of course, today, nursery through four-year-olds. But next week, kindergarten through fifth. So normal Sunday school, that would be really nursery all the way through fifth grade. So starting January 10th, we're kind of back into that, that routine. And then uh, lastly, uh, by way of announcements, that Pastor Joe's workshop on introduction to the Bible, or we could say kind of Bible overview, will start next week during this hour. So if you either, you said, oh, I'd like to do that and come, uh, you can do the workshop at 9.30 and then attend the 11 or attend the 8 and then go to the workshop. That's up to you, but I recommend it to you. Joe's thought a lot about these themes over the years, and it'd be a great chance just to know a subset of the church family if you're comfortable doing so. So that'll run through January, January 10th, 17th, 24th, and 31st. So Joe's workshop starting next week. Those things being said, we now turn our minds to the most important thing in all the universe. That is what God has done in Jesus. And I hope that you feel refreshed in this new year uh, to worship him in spirit and in truth as uh, brothers and sisters. So Pastor Ian will call us to worship and we'll praise him. Well, church, good morning. Happy New Year. Let's go ahead and let's stand together as we prepare ourselves to worship our God. And let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your faithfulness, you've carried us through 2020, you've brought us to a new year. Lord, let us remember, Lord, the newness that we can have, um, not just in uh, the circumstances, the context in which we live, but Lord, in your Son, the one who has made all things new and will one day restore all things, and every knee will bow to him because of the work that he's done. He's proven that you are God and there is no other. He's proven that he alone can take sin and shame and forgive sins. He's proven that he reigns and he lives and his word is living and active. And we thank you, Lord, that uh, his spirit resides in all who profess and call upon his name for eternal salvation. And Lord, help us as we worship you to direct our minds and our hearts to fixate completely on the Son, to, to be glad in him, to rejoice, to remember the promises we have. And not just that, Lord, but to delight ourselves in you, to just cherish the gift we have in your presence where there is the fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. May we sing your praises now. In Jesus' name, amen. of God and King, lift up your voice and with a sing, oh praise it, hallelujah, thou burning sun with golden beams, thou silver moon with softer gleam. Wind that I 
so strong Ye clouds that sail in heaven alone Oh, praise it Hallelujah The rising morn Praise, rejoice Ye lights of evening Find a Let's reflect together. It's a new year. Psalm 93. It's very fitting. Where it says all, let's read together as one church, and where it says leader, I'll read. Psalm 93. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Should nothing of our efforts stand, no legacy survive Unless the Lord does raise the house in vain Its builders strive to you boast tomorrow's gain Tell me, when is your life? Oh, man. 
dust that vanishes at dawn all glory be to Christ all glory be to Christ our King all glory be to Christ his rule and reign will ever sing all glory be to Christ His will be done His kingdom come on earth As is above Who is Himself our daily bread Praise Him, the Lord of love Let living water satisfy the thirsty Good morning, church. Good morning. My name is Randy Nickel. I'm one of the elders here at Providence, and welcome this morning. We're glad you're with us. Uh, please join me in prayer. Lord, as we head into a new year, Lord, we're reminded of the fact that we are new in Christ, that if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. So, Lord, we pray that this year we would learn what it means to live as new creations. That this year we would know you more than we did a year ago. That this year, Lord, um, you would help us to learn the things that we need to learn, to grow. We pray that you would use our church in ways that we have, we would be amazed. 
that you would do immeasurably more than we dare to ask or imagine, Lord. And Lord, we would look back and just be in awe of who you are and what you've done. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us, forgive us of our apathy and forgive us of sin. Forgive us for not doing and saying the things that we should. Forgive us for not loving and forgiving and showing compassion and grace. Lord, use us to be the people you call us to be. Lord, we pray for those that live around this church and live around our neighborhoods and workplaces. We pray that we would be the light of Christ, that we would shine brightly. We pray for conversations and for opportunities. Lord, we pray that you would bless the children that are here. Um, we commit them to you. I pray for all the university and college students, Lord. Pray that you would watch over them, keep them safe, and as they get ready to go back. And Lord, I pray that, uh, again, you would put people in their lives that would help them to draw them in deeper in a walk with you. Lord, we pray for our missionaries around the world. Lord, we thank you for that $60,000, and we're humbled. And uh, Lord, thank you for the things that you can do with it, but ask that you would use it to your glory. Um, we pray for that ultrasound machine, that it would just be an incredible blessing. So we thank you, Lord. Lord, we pray for this time. We pray for your word, that it would speak to our hearts uh, that you would speak through Austin. We pray for our offering that, Lord, um, thank you that we have an opportunity to give back to you. Again, we ask that you would use that offering to your glory. We commit this time to you in your son's name. Amen. Uh, we're going to be reading today. We would ask that if you are able that you would stand with us as a way of honoring God's word. So would you stand with us as as I read our scripture for today, we have a first be reading out of the ESV translation, and I'm going to start with Exodus 19, 4 to 6, and then I'll be reading Philippians 1, 1 to 11. Exodus 19, verses 4 to 6. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And now, Philippians 1. 1 to 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at that day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. 
For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for all of you, all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, and that you may prove what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Well, new year and a new study, and we turn to this little book called Philippians, much loved by Christians throughout the centuries, and I hope in the upcoming months that we'll be focused, that we'll all read it many times, uh, both in private and, of course, in our, in our uh, communal readings uh, here on Sundays. Now, I think there is immediately, when you turn to a book like Philippians or any of the New Testament books, in the modern mind, I think, is you, you start with an objection, don't you? You say, how in the world does this time-sensitive letter written by a first-century Jew to a small group in modern-day Greece, what in the world does this have to do with us today as we face the trials that we do? Uh, of what importance is it? And I'd say, while we never want to deny the fact that all the letters in the Bible to God's glory are written in a time and a space, you say God's anchored all that he's done in history, that's to his glory so that we can apprehend it and view it, and it's a text, but also, what does it have to do with us? You see that God has called the people to himself. That there's always been, what we could say, a covenant community. Those who acknowledge the God of the Bible and what he's did, done in Jesus. And it's to his word that we turn. We say, oh, this is what it's like to be under his authority. That we learn about who God is from his word and his expectations for those of us, his children, those who are his children. And that's why the letter is both something that's time sensitive, the first century A.D., but timeless because it calls God's people uh, to the kinds of behaviors and mindsets and, uh, and, and deeds that we would, it would be expected of God's uh, distinct people, as we'll study today. Now, this letter, as I said, you say, why is it much loved of Christians? You say, unlike other Pauline letters that are written, say, for polemical reasons, that there's some problem in the church, those are helpful, or that Paul would go on a long theological discourse, say, like you have in Romans. Say this, we don't have any of this. We could say Philippians is really a letter of friendship that Paul had founded the church, that they've taken good care of him with gifts, even while other churches haven't, that he's writing them, uh, both uh, because of Epaphroditus is going back and forth, but also to encourage them in the Lord, that we could say it's really a letter of how to live and delight in Jesus. And there's a reason that this letter has been called uh, the Epistle of Joy, and that's because either the word joy or its cognates, words like rejoice, will come up time and time again. And it's not an abstract joy, but it's a joy that's deeply theological, anchored in what God has done in Jesus. And for those reasons, you say it's much loved of Christians. You know, additionally, we could say, well, our theme, um, our theme for this series is stand firm, because if you have something close to why Paul's writing, you could turn to 1 and verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are then standing firm in one spirit 
with one mind, striving side by side for the faith in the gospel, or again in 4.1, that they would stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. So this standing firm in the Lord as one. Say it's always uh, something that should be on our minds when we're diverse, uh, a diverse group of people coming together. But the charge here is that we each have our own opinion and a lot of disagreements. Even something like the pandemic has brought its uh, disagreements among the saints. But here we have the charge to stand firm, even though we're all individuals, to stand firm even as we're one person and to stay strong in the faith. Yes, indeed, these were not being persecuted. I would say maybe a soft persecution per se, uh, but it's not persecution, persecution as much as it is times of great trial where we're called to persevere and endure in Jesus and in fact delight in him and even advance the gospel uh, while times might be disappointing to us. Now, the opening of the letter as I said, a very um, ancient practice writing letters. You have all kinds of examples from non-Christians, so people like Cicero write all kinds of letters. And you have what then the first two verses, where we're going to spend most of our time this morning, the first two verses are, are in many ways a classic greeting. You have the person who wrote the letter, you have the recipients of the letter, and then you have some kind of salutation, you know, greetings. But what I want us to notice here is how when it comes to Paul, how everything he touches goes to Christ. Say, so, yeah, you have the author of the epistle, but Paul and Timothy, who's there with him, Paul and Timothy, servants, but then notice, of Christ Jesus, to Jesus it goes. Then to all the saints, right, those who are in Philippi, and by the way, those who are in Christ Jesus, and then the greeting, grace to you and peace from God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you see, he takes the normal heading of a letter, who it's from, who it's to, and the greeting, and he can't help but go to Jesus in all three instances, in two verses, you have Christ Jesus, or the Lord Jesus Christ mentioned, to say his thought is saturated in what God has done in Christ. So yes, it's an epistle of joy. You could say an epistle of excellent things, a great encouragement how to live. But from first to last, it's about being in Jesus. And again, focusing on these first two verses, we'll just kind of take it in turn. That is the author, the recipients, and the greeting. And that's what we'll spend our time this morning. So first, just that very first word of Philippians. Paul. Paul. I think it's so important that whenever we study these 13 letters, any one of these 13 letters in our New Testament, to never keep Paul's biography very far away. Because it's such a powerful testimony of what Christ does in our lives. Say, so think back with me about this story of Paul. What do we know about him? Well, you know, say, born Saul. We know him in history as Saul of Tarsus. And you say, well, where's Tarsus? Tarsus is in Southeast Asia Minor. So maybe you can picture Turkey on the map and you think down to the Southeast of that country, say that's where Paul is born in that town. He's a diaspora Jew. That the word diaspora is really the technical word for those scattered Jews. So they're moved outside of Judea and Palestine, right? The, the, the homeland of the ethnic Jew, that they're scattered really across the globe, but all across the Mediterranean world. And Paul is brought up in one of these diaspora Jewish communities. Now, just by way of conjecture, it's always good to look at the history of the Bible in context of non-Christian histories that it's uh, one hypothesis that Paul's family ended up in Tarsus after Pompey sacked Jerusalem. So 63 BC, Pompey sacks Jerusalem, and he starts depositing Jewish communities across Asia Minor, some of which are in Tarsus. So we don't know, but maybe Paul's forebears are actually exiled by Pompey himself. But nevertheless, Paul's a Roman citizen, that at some point his family has been freed, that he's born into Rome under the auspices of Nero, and for that reason he's a Roman citizen and a diaspora Jew. 
Now, what we can know with a bit more firmness is that Paul's family must have had some means. You see, Paul has a very fancy foreign education, as I'm trying to describe. This is where if you bring a physical Bible, those maps are very helpful because you can kind of follow these places that will be mentioned a lot in our study today. But in Tarsus, again, you're thinking Turkey, Paul's got a very fancy education back down in Jerusalem that we know he studied under a man by the name of Gamaliel. And if you look at first century Judaism, again, outside the Bible, so you want to get anywhere with first century Ju Judaism, there's a, there's a towering name, a, a key figure, and that is this man, Rabbi Gamaliel. He's the top tutor of the day. I remember one of my teachers, a man by the name of Martin Goodman, who was considered an expert in this area, he'd go on at some length. He said, well, we know about rabbis and we know about Pharisees. And then he'd go into this other category called a, a haver in Hebrew, H-A-V-A-R in English, a haver, which is maybe called, we could call a fellow. He said, we know in Judaism that there are rabbis, there are Pharisees and, and havers and fellows, but only one person in all the historical record gets all three titles, and it's Gamaliel. Gamaliel is the top guy when it comes to Hebrew studies. And I don't even know who to compare this to today. So here you have a young Jewish boy, a diaspora Jew, Jew in Paul of Tarsus, who gets to somehow go down to Jerusalem and be among the select few students of the tutor of the day. And I think it's fair to say, based on other things that we know, say Paul would identify as a Pharisee, that he would have known wide sections by memory of what we call the Hebrew Bible, what we spent time on in Advent, so our Old Testament, our Hebrew Bible. Paul would have had large sections of that memorized. He would have been through it uh, with uh, you know, a great deal of, of fine-tuning, that he knew his Hebrew Bible well. He would have had it memorized, and to be a student of the Gamaliel, you say, you must have been quite smart, and your family probably had some means. Say, so what else do we know about Paul? His own testimony is that he's quite a, quite a zealous follower of the Bible, really, Say he, of, of the God of the Bible. Say he loved God, that he was devoted to Scripture. He used the word, I was zealous. So we said we, we don't really like that word zealous, but he's quite keen to follow the God of the Bible, so, so much so that he learns of a little movement that's come on the scene in the 30s. He said there's a little movement that said, well, we believe in Jesus of Nazareth, that Yahweh, this is Yahweh's Christ. And Paul says, I'll have none of that. So that's blasphemous. To think that Yahweh, the God of the Bible, would choose Jesus of Nazareth as, as his Messiah, say that movement must be stopped. You can picture him young, bright, a lot of energy, fancy education. He sets out to take out the Christians. And apparently did this with some bit of effectiveness because he started to get a reputation as one who was particularly good at finding out these Christ followers, these so-called ones following the false Messiah, bringing Yahweh down and smearing his Bible, that he'd go out there and he'd take them down. He said, well, what in the world happens? He said, I think a lot of us know the story and it's worth retelling that he's on his way to do just this. He's learned about some Christ followers up in Antioch, right up a little bit north, and he's on his way to take them out, and his life changes. Just like Nathaniel last week, you remember we looked at John chapter 1. Just like Nathaniel, Paul has an encounter, we could say a personal encounter with the Lord Jesus. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he's knocked down. And this man's transformed. 
Say, this great Hebrew scholar under Gamaliel now decides to do something else with his life. That he's charged with telling the entire world, we could say all the nations, that Jesus is the Christ, that they should repent of their ways and come to faith in Jesus. Now, you think about how crazy that is. I hope everybody realizes the great impossibility of this task. Here you are walking around, you know, all around that Mediterranean horn, and you've got to convince the pagan Romans and those, you know, following the Greco-Roman gods, oh, by the way, this unknown Galilean carpenter who was crucified way over in Jerusalem, well, actually, he's God's chosen instrument to judge the world and judge your sin, and you need to come to faith in him. (laughs) See, I don't know about you, but that's, to me, an impossibility. It's just not going to happen. And yet, it did. Why? Because Paul was God's chosen instrument to reach the nations, to give us the hope, right? The hope of nations that Jesus is for everybody. Come, it doesn't matter where you are. Repent and believe in Jesus. He goes on his way to tell the entire world about Jesus. See, I hope that we never keep that far when we read this letter to say Paul's a man whose life was transformed by a personal encounter with Jesus. You know, I get a lot of questions about the Bible, as I'm sure you do as well, when you, people know you're a Christian, and there's a lot of objections here. You say, well, people, you know, object to Paul, and they don't really like Paul. Well, Paul, you know, has got a, a different faith from Jesus, and he's really the one who invented Christianity, and so I'm not sure that I b- believe any of this. And I just have a few, I just want to push back a bit on those who might think this way, that this isn't that special of a story. First thing I think we can evaluate is that some might say, well, leaders break from, from their tutors, or tutors, students break from their leaders, their tutors all the time, what's so different about this? I would say this, that when a student breaks from his master, he does so normally to make a name for himself. We have a very famous example in the ancient world of a student breaking from his teacher. And think about what happened. This is Plato and Aristotle, right? So you have Plato, you know, that's been said in Western philosophy. There's Plato and everybody else is a footnote. So Plato's this towering figure in the ancient world. He's got a, a prized pupil, Aristotle. So you have Gamaliel and Paul of Tarsus, right? Aristotle breaks from Plato. He's not a Platonist, right? He erects his own system. But what does he erect? We know it today as Aristotelianism. That Aristotle, yes, he breaks from Plato, but he says, this is what I think. And what you have here is Paul's breaking from Gamaliel, and instead of saying, here's Paulism, what does he say? Look to Jesus. Excuse me? You with this fancy education and these good means, you say you're on the up, you're on this trajectory to be a Pharisee, to be a teacher yourself. You break from Gamaliel only to say, look to the carpenter. Say, do we have any examples of that in the ancient world where somebody would break from their tutor but do so in such a way to point to someone who's so unlikely? Say, in human eyes, in the human world, you plop yourself down in the first century, there's no doubt who's the more impressive figure from human human eyes. Say, Paul has got way better odds than Jesus. I mean, like I said, you know, Paul's got got a lot going for him, whereas Jesus, I mean, he's unknown, he's got nothing, he's no pedigree, you know, people are questioning whether or not he's a legitimate child or not. You say, Jesus has nothing in the world's eyes, and Paul had quite a lot. And yet, Paul breaks from his famous tutor and says, everybody needs to pay attention to Jesus. That's very unusual. 
Secondly, some would say, well, Paul might be lying. I mean, how do we know he's not just in this for himself? And I think that that question kind of answers itself. You say, when somebody lies, there have been a lot of leaders in the history of the world who've lied. You only need to look at something like the, you know, the propaganda studies of the 20th century in the Soviet Union or in, 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 in Europe. I mean, both, you say, yeah, leaders lie all the time for all kinds of purposes. But when a leader lies, he is surely doing it for his benefit or his people's benefit. Say, that much is obvious. Why would Paul be lying when it's clear that it's to his detriment? That this letter is mentioned a number of times. We read in 1-7, right, that he's in prison. <laughs> that this man, full of energy, has all these brains in his mind and all, this, all these efforts. You say, where does following Jesus get him? Well, it gets him in chains. It, gets, it puts him on a death sentence, as we'll see later in chapter 1. Say, if a leader lies, surely he does it to, to have a better life, not to have a worse life. And yet, that's what we find with Paul. This proclamation of Jesus was very costly for him, very costly indeed. And I don't know, again, if we have many analogies of that. Some would say, well, maybe Paul's a little off balanced. I mean, you know, does he, you know, this kind of drastic change, you know, where you seem to be quite a, a bright pupil, which again, by the way, none of that's really disputed by non-Christian historians. So you have quite a bright pupil. You know, he must have been out of his mind to do something like this, to be traveling around and telling people about Jesus. Maybe he was a bit, a bit off. You say, when a leader's crazy, he doesn't have long-term success. Again, you have a lot of clear examples of this in the first century. Say, Nero, who's the Roman emperor at the time, right? He's the one who likely executes Peter and Paul. Say, it's very clear that he's not well in the mind. And all the Roman historians are unambiguous about this. They say, Nero was, was not well in the mind. Consequently, he's not well-liked in the, in, the, in the Roman annals of history. Same with this figure like Caligula, right? That they're not well in the mind. It's well-documented, and they're regarded as very poor leaders. Say, we have nothing with that with Paul of Tarsus. Say, there's no evidence to think that he was crazy or that he was mad. Rather, through history, you say, has there ever been anyone like Paul of Tarsus? Finally, and one other point that I'll make is some would say, well, I think this is really an invention of the church. I mean, what better way to authenticate this stuff is if you make up a story about a guy who's, you know, a great, great Jewish scholar and he begins to follow Jesus. You know, perhaps it's just an invention of the church and it's imposed on all the texts. And when you get this objection, you think, well, there's no apparatus in the first century for this kind of systematic censorship. You know, it's as if some people envision a kind of 1940s German Gestapo going around to all the houses, you know, taking out the manuscripts, you know, putting in the fakes, and then squanching it all, you know, burning all the... the Say, there's nothing like that. Say, the church is so incredibly small. At the time of Jesus' death, you met maybe 500 whom he appeared to, if they were all, I guess, all believers. So you're talking of hundreds. They're meeting in little pockets and places. Do you think those in this service, you say, were way larger, probably three times, us here this morning, three times larger than the church in Corinth. And you know this by archaeology and how big the buildings are and that they're all in one place. You say, these are small bands, often of very poor people. We can't envision a great apparatus, you know, erecting a lie to say, let's invent this story and put it in all of our texts and then hope everybody buys it. You say, that's completely implausible. Say, so I hope you're getting the point that behind this letter is a person whose, whose life has been transformed by the Lord Jesus. You have a non-believing friend who's an honest skeptic, who's really, you know, thinks deeply about these things. You ask him, you say, what do you think happened to Paul? 
well-documented, his upbringing, his study under Gamaliel, well-documented that he had a drastic change in course, that he walks at least 10,000 miles, that's what is documented, across the Roman world, proclaiming Jesus. How in the world did this happen? And could it be that the best explanation is the one that the Bible gives, that he had a personal encounter with Jesus? And again, to all of us, those of us who are Christians, to say, yeah, it's nice to think about these things. You say there's a saying in the preaching world, say, we never preach for information. Say, I, you know, I can give the information. You can read the opening introduction in your study Bibles. You say the information's interesting. You know, Philippi, what are we getting at here? That the Lord Jesus, I hope if you're a Christian, you give that testimony. Say, Jesus has changed my life. And consequently, I, I, don't, I remember who I used to be without him, say, or the way that I would go without him. But my life has changed. My heart's been touched, and I'm going to do something about it, like Paul did. Say, I, in light of this, in light of what God has done in him, I'm going to make an impact. And so Paul did. Look, even in this letter, right, founding the church of Philippi, investing in people like Timothy and Epaphroditus. He names Clement and Eudoia and Syntyche and others there. So he founds Philippi. He invests in people. And so it is for us. If we've been changed by Christ... We've been transformed, so we do something about it. We say, I want to make this Jesus known. I want to do everything I can. Paul did what he could, God's chosen instrument. But what about us in this time, in this place? Are we like him? Can we too make an impact? So Paul, the author, like every Christian, understands the truth that Jesus changes lives. And this letter is written by one whose life was changed. And so for every Christian whose life is changed, that our life then is not our own, but rather we live for him, and again, we proclaim his name. So Paul, the author in Christ Jesus. Now, what about the recipients? Who's it to? Paul and Timothy, the younger man, giving him serious responsibility there. But then the recipients, also in verse 1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Just a few remarks about Philippi. Again, you can study this. But the founding of the church in Philippi is well worth reading in Acts 16. Have a read of that this week. I'm sure we'll be referencing a lot between now and Easter. But in Acts 16, you remember, uh, maybe you remember back, read this more recently, but the story of the founding of the church of Philippi. Paul and his buddies want to go back into Asia. They want to, in other words, they want to head east. And as Paul's doing this, he has the vision of the Macedonian man. And the Macedonian man, it says, come and proclaim the gospel in Europe. In other words, don't go back east. We want you to come west. And Paul and Silas then make a pivot. They go into Macedonia. And so the church is founded in Europe. You know, you've been to Europe or seen pictures. You say you think of all those steeples, right? You go to any of the old towns and all the steeples are punctuating uh, the skylines and say, where did it start? Well, it started with the vision of the Macedonian man and this Paul of Tarsus making his way into modern-day Greece and saying, repent, believe on the Lord Jesus. And you know who's converted? Lydia, the businesswoman dealer of the luxury good of purple items. Do you have a slave girl there who's uh, the, the spirit in her is driven out, the demonic spirit is driven out, and she's converted. And then Paul and Silas, as they're in prison, right, they start singing hymns, and the jailer is converted, right? How may, can I be saved? Well, believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. And you think of that founding of the church in Philippi. Lydia, really a, a well-to-do businesswoman, the jailer, who would have been kind of your middle-class person, I suppose, you know, just looking after the jail at night, and a slave girl. And what happens? The word of Jesus penetrates the heart of all three. 
Say so the gospel's not sensitive to class. It's not sensitive to your pedigree or your upbringing. Say the word of Jesus to repent and believe on him. Believe on Jesus. All those who believe in him will be saved. It was true in Philippi, and the church is founded. This small group of people by Paul, and he's writing them to encourage them in the Lord. And Philippi, of course, a leading city in Macedonia, I think there's a lesson there too, is that we are very good at say, being strong in what I would say are not exactly what we call the, the great cultural centers of America. You say, where are all the Christian organizations? Well, places like Orlando and Colorado Springs. You say, nothing wrong with Orlando and Colorado Springs, but we must focus, I think, on the great cultural centers. Say, not to the places where Christians are, but where they're not, in the great city centers. And so it was with Philippi, the chief city in Macedonia, a proud Roman city, and the gospel takes foot, and off they go. Now, there's an intimidating word, I think, well, maybe not intimidating as you read it historically, but as we apply it, it can be intimidating. Say, so what does Paul call this group of Christians in Philippi? There in verse 1, he calls them the saints. Now, who's a saint? You think, well, I know in the Catholic Church, they make saints out of those who, you know, famous Christians of the past. That's what a saint is, but it's certainly not, you know, those here. Say, so the word saint takes a bit of unpacking. See, like a lot of language that we have in the New Testament, it's got Old Testament pedigree, doesn't it? So in the Old Testament, you have a lot of uh, things being set apart as holy. Really, the word saint, you could say, is holy ones. If you wanted to do a, a little bit uh, you know, longer translation, you could say to all the holy ones, to all those who are set apart. That if you're holy in the Old Testament, you're set apart for a different use. If you noticed our first reading, Exodus chapter 19, that the Israelites are to be a holy nation, a nation of priests set apart for God's use. And Paul's picking up on that language here. He says, look, the covenant community are those set apart for God's use. You're to be distinct. You're to identify with Jesus. You're for a different purpose. So you think, before I was a Christian, I say, what's my purpose? Well, I suppose it's to maximize my pleasure and look after my friends. I guess that's my purpose. What else would it be? But those who are in Christ Jesus, you say, we have a new orientation that we're identified with Christ, we're in him, we're set apart for his purposes. So you could say this to all those who are set apart in Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi. And same to those of us here, to all those who are set apart in Christ Jesus in Avon. You have a new purpose. Now, when you get into this kind of thing, you say there's, again, another modern objection. You say, I, some people don't like this, and that is that you create an us versus them. So you say, well, there's them out there. You say, all those are, they're all the, the bad people, right? They're not Christians like us. There's those out there, and then us saints in here. And if you go say, that's not what we want to do to create a kind of snobbishness to say that we've got it all together and everybody else out there, we just kind of let them go their way. And I say, well, why is this not the case? Can I, can I show you why this is not the case? And the reason is this, that the, the, the reason the people in Philippi are called the saints is because they're in Christ Jesus. That it's not that the people are better. It's not that the people in the church have it together and everyone outside the church does not have it together or that they're somehow they've earned it in a way that those outside the church haven't earned. The reason they're saints is because they're positioned in Jesus, who's the Holy One. Say, so let's face it, we have no hope of being holy on our own. Say, that's the last word I would apply to myself, Mallory and my parents and my kids. They'll testify to that. Say, there's nothing really holy in the way that I conduct my affairs, but you say, there's Jesus who's pure and when we're in him, 
we can be set apart for his purposes. You see, friends, what does it mean to be in Christ? I've heard it said like this. You can think of almost the, of, of the fish in water. See, it's the only environment in which the fish can operate. So you pull a fish out of water, say it doesn't go well. It's, it's uncomfortable for the fish. He's not going to make it. He's, he's, he's in a foreign, foreign territory, so to speak. So it is for the Christ follower that everything we do is in Christ. See, I get too far away from him, and it should feel like, I don't like this at all. It's very uncomfortable. I'm not going to make it. I'm going my own way. I'm going to self-destruct. But when we're in Christ, say that's where all of our motivations our inclinations, the way that I speak to my colleagues and to my spouse and to my children, say that hopefully that when I sin that I'm checked and that I'm convicted of that sin. That's what it means to be in Christ, to identify with him, to, so, to swim in the waters of who Jesus is, so to speak. That's how anyone, any Christ follower, has the hope of being set apart for his use is by being in him and to abide in him. So the Christian is different, not because we're better than anybody else, but actually because of what Jesus has done. And along those lines, those who would accuse Christians of being snobbish and creating an us versus them, I would say that the Christian is one who's actually acknowledged their sinfulness and weakness. Say, oh, you think this is an exclusive club? Well, I got new. You know how you get in? You admit your need. Say, so it's not that, again, that we have it all together. We're those who say, Lord, we've sinned against you. That if the judgment's to happen unaided, say, I'm in big trouble. I mean, the things that I've said and all that I've done, I'm on the wrong side of your moral economy, that I admit my need, that I'm, I'm a sinner and I need your help. I'm a weak person. I, I'm dependent on my own. I'm not going to make it. Say, the Christ follower, that is the saint in this passage, is not one who's boasted in his achievements, but one who's boasted in his weaknesses and in his sinfulness. God, we need your help. We've sinned against you. We're not going to make it outside of your grace. You see, that's different than being snobbish. And finally, you say, well, I think being a Christian, some would say, well, those Christians are so exclusive. You say Christianity, to use that term, to be a Christ follower, to me is the most inclusive of all the world religions. What I mean by that is just like Lydia and the jailer and the slave girl, it doesn't matter. Everyone's called everywhere to come to faith in Jesus. Have a look at our homepage this week. You know, you learn a lot about a church from its homepage. You talk to people that know this arena. You say, go on the church's website. You'll see what they stand for. And I very much like uh, what Jonathan and the team have done. But you say, what does it say? We exist to glorify God. And we're calling people everywhere to follow Christ with us. And you go out here on the sign. What does it say? Our motto, follow Christ together. You say, we call everyone everywhere to repent and believe in Jesus. It's not an exclusive club. Say, well, these are the boundary markers. Nobody allowed in. You know, there's all those bad people out here and all of us good people. Say, no, it's, we're in Christ. He's the Holy One. That our only shot is when we're completely in Him. That to be a Christ follower, you admit your need and your weakness and your sinfulness. And we like everyone. It doesn't matter your background or what you're like to repent of your sin and to be cleansed of Jesus just, uh, by Jesus, just as Paul was. Say, anybody who thinks they're too far gone, right, to say, oh, that thing that I did, that I never be forgiven, I can never be repurposed. You say, you only need to look at the author of the epistle to say, this great terrorist, the guilt that must have been on him for persecuting the followers of Jesus. Not so. Why? Because he's been cleansed and made new in Christ. That's what it means to be in him, to be in Christ. A final word on this, you know, I think that nowadays we can be very tempted 
to pretend that there's not this real difference between being a Christ follower and being not a Christ follower, right? We want to blur that distinction to say, you know what, we're not that different. And, you know, maybe if we allow a little bit more of the culture into the church and maybe if we assimilate a bit more out there and, you know, this creates a lot of anxiety because I think deep down we know, you say, we really are called to be distinct as Israel was and as these saints were to say, we're to be different. And I hope there's a liberation there. There's a sense of saying, oh, yeah, as a Christ follower, there are things that I do and I don't do that wouldn't be the case if I wasn't a Christ follower. To say one such example might be in Christian sexual ethics. To say, how much do we try to toe that line? And to say, well, we're not weird as the world sees it. You know, I mean, talking about monogamy and being faithful and no cohabiting and all these things. You say, let's just not pretend that those are that different. Instead of being honest, we say, actually, that's, that's quite weird to the, the world's eyes. But our hope is to say we're in Christ Jesus. Yeah, we're called to be distinct. And we pray that by the way that we love each other and the way that we conduct our affairs, that those non-believers will again see Jesus in our example. That when we embrace our distinctness, it's not that we want to match the culture more and more. I think, I think a lot of the churches have that exactly wrong. You say, if we match the culture, then the people will come. You say, actually, I think it's the exact opposite. May we bear out the calling that we have in Jesus to say, oh, we, we are set apart. We're to be focused on him. We, we do things for him. That that, in fact, is what's going to win the day. Friends, these recipients are set apart for Jesus' use because they're in him. And I think that's true for us today. We're set apart for his use because we're in him. Do we make ourselves available to that end? Now, finally, this salutation. So we did the author, Paul. Great calling on his life to the recipients, those set apart, the holy ones in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, and their leadership all together, of course, to the salutation in verse 2. Grace to you and peace. Those two words. What wonderful words they are. And I think the order is strategic. Say, it is by virtue of the grace we receive in Jesus, God has come down to us in Jesus, right, that we just celebrated at Advent. Say, it's because of the grace we've received that we consequently have the peace, which we defined again on Christmas Eve as those who are right with God, who are flourishing, who are whole. That's what the word peace means. So you say, you're whole and flourishing. What do you mean? In these times with all that's going on and how angry I am and I watch the news, how in the world can I have peace? Well, you have peace by recognizing the gift that God's given us in the Lord Jesus, that I've been a recipient of his kindness and his grace, and consequently, as I rest in that, that I can have peace. Say, if you're a Christian, say, I hope this truth is as true for you now as it's always been, and even more so, you can say, yeah, you know what, these next couple months, there's a lot of uncertainty here, and I can feel frustrated and very angry, but look at the heart of this letter. You crutch the great paradox of verse 2, don't you? Say, where's the author? He's in prison. Say, what do we associate with being in prison? We associate being bound and confined and limited and stifled. Say, the last place any of us would ever think of experiencing peace and, and praising God for his word. The last place, say, in a prison, a dank prison cell in Rome. And yet Paul says, oh, no, I'm a recipient of God's kindness, and I have peace. How much more so for you, brother and sister in Jesus? Yeah, and I'm not, not too happy with these times, but you know what? I have peace. I'm right with God, and I'm in Christ Jesus, and I, I know that I've been transformed by him, and I want to live for him. Say, so yeah, all is well with my soul. Grace 
and peace. And if you're a non-Christian, say start of a new year, maybe you're thinking about these things a bit differently, or you're back from college, or any you're in these categories, I hope that it captures you say, yeah, it's a very intimidating world out there. Say anxiety and depression, as we saw, were on the rise, and we can lose our way, and we try to live for ourselves, and the more enslaved we become, you say, well, not in a literal enslavement in Rome, but in, in a very real uh, mental confinement, whatever it would be. Can you see the great liberty in Jesus that he changes lives? He'll set you anew. He'll give you a hope and a peace. You trust your life to him. I hope that's the case today, too. Friends, the great paradox in our faith is that it doesn't depend on our material circumstances, or whether there's a pandemic or the right or the wrong politicians are in there, as they clearly weren't in Paul's day. But what matters is whether we comprehend this truth that we've been set apart in Christ Jesus, that we've been recipients of his grace, and that we have peace, and that we're to live distinct lives for the short time we have. So I'll pray and invite the team back up. Lord, we're completely intimidated by this language of being a saint. I know I am a holy one. I, so there's really nothing I like to think of holy in myself. And yet we see here that those who are in Jesus are to be set apart for your purpose. Help us to mature in such a way where this becomes more and more the case. That our inclinations and our speech and our conduct and how we handle our money and every area of our life, we could say, you know, I was in Christ Jesus. I was swimming in that stream, so to speak. And help us to not be embarrassed or shy about the fact that this is very different. If you're a non-Christian, this makes no sense at all to be in Christ Jesus, to be set apart for his reason, to say, who would want to do that? With their help us to see that the, there is a difference, but it's not to be one of that we're snobbish, but rather to say we've admitted our weakness. And as we live out our calling and we live distinctly, that you would use our lives and our testimony to win other people to Jesus. Lord, Philippi was a far more hostile environment than the western suburbs of Cleveland, Ohio. So help us to live in a, in a way that translate this message across the culture. Help us to embrace this distinction as, as uh, to be a nation set apart for you. So use our lives, we pray. Thank you for transforming us in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Church, let's stand together and respond. Joyful singing. By faith we see the hand of God In the light of creation's grand design in the lives of those who prove his faithfulness Who walk by faith and not by sight By faith our fathers roamed the earth With the power of his promise in their hearts Of a holy city by God's own hand, a place where peace and justice reign. We will stand as children of the promise. We will fix our eyes on Him, our soul's reward. Till the race is finished.
prophet prophets all day when the long for Messiah would appear with the power to bring the chains of sin and death and rise triumphant from the grave by faith this church was called to in the power of the Spirit to the lows To deliver captives and to preach good news In every corner of the earth We will sing as children of the mountain shall be moved, and the power of the gospel shall prevail, for we know in Christ all things are possible, for all who call upon his name, we will stand as children of the
Pushing the near and far No force of hell can stop Your beauty changing hearts Lord, you made us for much more than this Awake the kingdom seed in us Fill us with the strength and love of Christ hey, We are your church We are the hope on earth Building your kingdom Let the darkness fear Show your mighty head Heal our streets Heal and set your church on fire When this nation back David for being with us. Very great to, to have you. And only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. May that be our prayer that we strive together side by side in one mind, in one spirit, that the gospel may advance because we are those in Christ Jesus. Now, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, the communion and fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest and abide upon each of you until we shall meet again or until our blessed Savior Jesus Christ comes now and forevermore. Amen. May we go in his peace.
Seals mercy and pardon.